reading of the scriptures from Romans chapter 9, reading verses 6 to 13. I invite you to open your Bibles and uh, more importantly to hear uh, the public reading of God's word here as we find it in Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved. But Esau, I hated the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The um, label attesting to uh, the attribute of God of his sovereignty is affirmed, I think, universally by Christians. Um, Certainly, uh, I've never met a Christian who uh, denied God's sovereignty. Uh, But the application of his sovereignty is a place where there's uh, incredible disagreement. Um, What does it mean God is sovereign uh, respecting our salvation? And this is where Paul uh, will take us uh, this morning by displaying that uh, the initiative in saving is God's. It's also the initiative... Uh, that is an outworking of the decree of God's sovereign election. Uh, Election is one of those terms that many, many Christians reject. Uh, But again, uh, their rejection is not the issue. Is do we find it in the Word of God? It's the application of redemption. And I think the Apostle Paul is quite clear in our text this morning. Uh, The immediate application is uh, Israel. Uh, Paul's dealing with this issue, having finished with the great doctrines of justification and sanctification. Uh, What about Israel? Uh, How how come they haven't uh, come to faith? And uh, Paul is going to say that the promise never was to the nation. By application, that's true of the church. Uh, It's not a promise to everyone who uh, belongs to a church. It's going to be saved. Uh, Within the nation of Israel, there's always a remnant. Within the church, again, there's a remnant. Uh, By using the word remnant, I'm not suggesting that it's a small number. It's a massive number. But nonetheless, uh, the application of the sovereignty of God in salvation uh, is applicable to uh, uh, his uh, work to gather 
those who belong to him from eternity past. Well, in verses 6 to 9, as I've already suggested, uh, the promise of God is to a spiritual remnant. Again, the implicit question, why isn't the nation saved? Because God never promised to save the nation. He only promised to save uh, within the nation. Uh, last week, we studied Paul's lament. Now Paul turns to a defense of his, namely God's divine supremacy in the application of redemption. Uh, the reference to the potential failure of the word of God references the reality that Israel in Paul's day, as well as our day, is an apostate nation. So if God promised to save Israel, has, has the word of God failed? Well, the opposite is affirmed. Look at your text, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So it's not the physical progeny to whom the promises were made, but a spiritual remnant. And that's who God's going to, that's who God's going to gather. And his word will gather all or the entirety of that spiritual remnant. Uh, so again, God never intended to save all. Now, the verb fail is literally to fall out of, uh, used figuratively in uh, this context that the word of God can fail in fulfillment. Uh, Luke uh, uses this uh, word in the book of Acts uh, as a nautical term for ships that go off course. So uh, in the sense of the nation of Israel, God has gone off course. Uh, he wanted something and uh, he didn't get what he wanted. Uh, both uh, subject and verb are used in 1 uh, Peter. If you want to turn a uh, very relevant text here, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, I'm going to read verses 23 to 25. Uh, Paul, uh, pardon me, Peter speaking, says, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word. It was preached to you. So the description of the word is that it is uh, alive and abides or continues and remains until everything else has fallen away and everything that the word of God intended is accomplished because the word of God cannot fail. Uh, it's not like a product that we can open and uh, set on a shelf and uh, 10 years later we come back and it's all full of mold. The Word of God abides uh, forever, never fails. It's going to run its course until everyone that God has intended to save uh, is gathered. Uh, the quotation of uh, Peter, as I'm sure you gathers from Isaiah 48, uh, speaks of the grass that withers and the flower that uh, falls off. 
Uh, the context in Isaiah is of men. We're the ones that fail. Our words fail. Uh, the best of our promises sometimes fail. Does not apply to God. The canter is the word of God lives forever. So it's men that fail and not God. Uh, it's a nation that failed and not God. Because his promises together a spiritual remnant will run their course. And, and by the way, that subject matter is going to continue uh, until we reach the end of Romans chapter 11. Uh, it is, I think, important for us to recognize uh, the power of the word of God that goes forth together the people of God. A uh, couple of texts I know that you're familiar with because we've looked at them often. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. God says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. So it's going to cause all men uh, to bow before Christ and to confess Christ whether lost or saved. Uh, the lost uh, will do it uh, because they recognize that they failed and they will bow in allegiance. And uh, the righteous will be vindicated. Uh, we do so willingly. Uh, great illustration, if you will, of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, uh, you will be brought before the majesty of God to bow before him. What an occasion to say, if that's the end state of my life, perhaps I should confess my sin now and come to the Savior and bow before him now and confess him to be Lord. Uh, another great text, uh, Isaiah 55, 11, so shall by my word be that goes forth out of my mouth, shall not return to me void or empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I send it. If you think about that text, the word of God's going to go forth and gather, gather God's people. And it cannot fail. Time is not an issue. It's an issue for us, but not with God. He's going to succeed. A great uh, illustration for us of the imperishability of the word of God and the power inherent within the divine to make it happen. Illustration in my own uh, preaching. I can invite people to come to Christ. Many, if not most, reject. Uh, when God invites, he grants his power to the invitation so that men and women and boys and girls come willingly to the Savior uh, because his will is efficacious and effective, the power of the word of God. Illustrated, of course, uh, in the initial pages of the Bible. God speaks and the world is framed. He speaks. That's all he has to do. He does not have to go hire contractors, issue bids, like you and I have to do when we want to build something. He just simply speaks the word of God and the world is framed in all of its majesty. Uh, and the reason, again, that uh, the word is not failed is because they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Uh, 
So within the nation, there was a spiritual remnant to whom the promises were made. Uh, there follows uh, an illustration in verse 7, uh, the life of uh, Abraham. Uh, Paul is uh, quoting the scripture here, uh, Genesis uh, chapter 21 and verse 12, in affirmation that the promise is through Isaac. The context is a reaffirmation of that promise. Uh, previously, as you know, contextually from Genesis, uh, Abraham thought that uh, because of his age, God needed his help. So he takes his maid, and Ishmael is born. He's the son of Abraham, but he's not a son of promise. Ishmael is rejected. By the way, um, God doesn't need our help. If he did, he wouldn't be God. Uh, Ishmael is a child of the flesh. Isaac is a child of the promise, who is a true descendant. And Genesis, in part, is tracing that spiritual lineage. Uh, in confirmation, verse uh, 9, uh, Paul quotes uh, Genesis chapter 18 and verse 10. And Sarah shall have a son. You know the context. Both Abraham and Sarah are way past uh, the age of uh, the ability to uh, have children. That doesn't hinder God in the least because of his creative word that can make things happen. Uh, the use of the Old Testament in both citations is theological in establishing the beauty and the majesty of the truth that the word of God does not fail because the promises are entirely based and affected based upon the power of God. In other words, Paul is tracing, as I've suggested, a remnant from the promise and not the flesh. And that remnant, of course, comes from what? Uh, the eternal covenant of redemption made in eternity past between Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, and the promise did not fail because God cannot fail. Thus, Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Uh, this could also be a prototypical uh, use of the Old Testament uh, in that this is how God does it. Namely, his promise and not human ability. So in terms of redemption, uh, we come to faith based upon the divine promise of God and attached to that promise is his divine power to make it so. Uh, in a theological sense, we owe our faith or the lack thereof to our election. Uh, for all of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, uh, we apprehended Christ as our Savior by faith, uh, but we owe that faith to the majesty of God's election of us in eternity past before we had done anything so that the choice was God's and that God dispatched his word to run us to ground. Applies to Israel. It's the primary object of uh, Paul's teaching, but also applies to the church. Uh, we don't come to faith based upon ritual, traditions, uh, titles, 
because we do something. Uh, baptism does not uh, wash away our original sin. It's the blood of Christ that does that. And so that the promises are always to a remnant. So within Israel, there is a spiritual remnant. Within the church, there is a spiritual remnant. And that spiritual remnant is going to come to faith and follow the Savior because of the power of the Word of God and the eternal decrees of election. Uh, again, by application, uh, I don't know who that remnant is, uh, so God commissions the church to proclaim the gospel throughout all of the nations. We can have the sure confidence that the word of God will not fail uh, and that God will gather his own. Uh, certainly there's an application uh, there for your own life in terms of humility. Uh, you came to faith not because you were smarter than someone or you simply had better reading skills than someone. You came to faith because God opened your mind and your eyes and you apprehended the beauty and the majesty of the Savior uh, and that he gave you the gift of faith. We owe it all to God, uh, God's sovereign election. Uh, in verses uh, 10 to 13, the promise of election is by sovereign choice of individuals based on sovereign grace. Notice uh, I've described this, uh, God's sovereign choice of individuals, not national. There's not a national election in the Old Testament. It's individuals. So from the sons of Abraham, uh, Paul uh, expands his illustration uh, through the sons of Isaac. And here again, God rejects tradition. What was the tradition? Well, the firstborn. Uh, was the heir. Esau was the firstborn. God rejects Esau. God rejects everything other than his sovereign choice in establishing the sons of promise. In other words, uh, the choice was not the order of birth. The choice was God's. There's the rejoinder um, many uh, parties in church that uh, election is corporate uh, and tied, of course, to foreseen faith. Uh, as to the former of the context, again, Romans 9 is tracing individuals, uh, a part of the whole, not the entirety of the whole, but the part. And foreseen faith and free will are demolished here because the acts of God are totally independent of the acts of men, uh, and the latter affects the former. It's the divine initiative, the divine power, the divine decree that causes our faith. So it is true, we owe our faith to our election. Uh, text is an allusion to Genesis 25, verse 21. Uh, the reminder that uh, God is at work in our case, uh, Romans chapter 9 and verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, 
but because of him who calls. It's God's choice. Falls to him. You know, by the way, what a, what a compelling uh, statement for each of us uh, to walk humbly before God. Uh, because it's the entirety of our salvation. So divine election is an element of the covenant of grace. It's prior to birth, to faith, and to works. Because it's God's sovereign choice. Uh, the purpose clause uh, in, in this text uh, cements the independence of God in sovereign election because the choice was prior to the birth of the twins and prior to any actions on their part. God's not passive in salvation. He's active. He's the one that's making it happen. Now, again, notice the text. Romans 9.11 in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand. The purpose clause cements it all. Uh, that God, uh, God is the one at work saving individuals. Uh, therefore, the preeminence goes to define purpose, uh, and that purpose is causative. It causes uh, God decrees, and then God sets in motion everything that's needed to affect those decrees. Let's look at uh, Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. All Christians love God because they were called according to his divine purpose. John says in his first epistle, we love God, but he loved us first. That we even owe our love for God, our affection for God, to the fact that he ran us to ground and set his eternal love upon us and wooed us and made our will willing. So that everything, everything we owe to God, our faith, our choice, the divine power. Now, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Absolutely incredible in eternity past. God, the great architect, not only frames the physical universe, but the spiritual. The decree of election. The decree, because it's God's purposeful, it goes and affects exactly what God intended. That our God is not uh, in heaven chewing his fingernails, uh, not wringing his hands, not pacing back and forth. He sets it all in motion. By the way, it's a comfort you and I can have over people that we uh, deeply and profoundly love and we want to see uh, come to faith. Uh, God has ordained means, so we pray for them. Uh, God has ordained means, and so we share the gospel with Him. But we can rest in the confidence that it falls to Him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11. 
This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's gathered the church by Christ, the spiritual creator. Uh, great text uh, to this end. Second uh, Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 9, if you want to turn uh, in your New Testaments. Uh, Paul says of God that who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In all eternity, we were granted. Those who named Christ as Savior were granted to Christ, and Christ goes and purchases all that the Father elects. And then, as you know, in the eternal counsel of redemption, the Spirit goes and applies it to everyone uh, that Christ died for. The impeccable unity of the Trinity. The problem, uh, if, if I might be so humble, with many Christian theologians, uh, of which all Christians are theologians, the issue is, is their theology biblical and according to Scripture? Is that their starting point is man. Paul's starting point is God's. Uh, it, was, it was through Isaac, it was through Jacob, that God turns uh, everything uh, according to his will. Uh, so uh, Paul says that divine election stands. His choice is causative. Stands in the sense that it will come to pass, will be effective. Uh, this verb stand is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The word of God stands forever. And it will accomplish everything that God intends. I find a great deal of comfort in that. Sometimes I uh, listen to the news and I think everything's spinning out of control. No, God's in control. And God is gathering his people. In the midst of incredible devastation and chaos, uh, God is gathering his people, and none will be lost. In other words, the sovereign choice is irrespective of time and circumstances because God will make it happen. Uh, men, of course, make free choices, uh, but it's uh, God's choice that causes and so we come willingly to the Savior. Uh, the choices of men may or may not come to pass. The choices of God will always come to pass. When God chooses, it is immutable and efficacious because it produces a calling infused with the very power needed to make it happen. God makes a choice, and then he has the power to affect the choice. Uh, it's one of the attributes of God. God is all-powerful. Technical word, omnipotent. Uh, so when God wants something, he has uh, full power to make it happen. Now, Romans uh, chapter uh, 8 and verse 30. Uh, notice the great string here. 
whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. I reminded you in that text that uh, Paul here is speaking of future events like our glorification as if they are a past event. How can that be? Uh, Because of the power of God. It is as certain to happen because God willed it to happen. I mean, what a great hope and comfort to be a Christian, that we will be glorified, not not maybe. We will be, because we were in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we owe our faith, we owe our glorification, our justification, our sanctification, our calling to the sovereign purposes of the power of God. Of course, Paul here is dismantling works when he says, not because of works, but of him who calls. And so the birth of of Jacob was something of a miracle. The order was a miracle because Esau was born first. Primogenitor, certainly in the ancient Near East, uh, the firstborn was the heir. Not in God's case, because he's the one who determines. Jacob is the heir. Even though Esau had preeminence as the firstborn, God has preeminence. And the promise went to Jacob. Verse 12 is, in Romans chapter 9, is, Uh, the third Old Testament citation from Genesis 25, verse 23. Uh, Notice uh, Paul is um, proving his case to Jews from their own literature. Verse 12, we said to her the Older will serve the younger. Uh, I might add in my own personal preference that, crummy as it may be at times, that Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter. I have great affection for hunters. He was the apple of his father's eye. He brought things to his father that his father loved to eat. Wanted to please his father. We're drawn to him. At least I'm drawn to Esau. None of that matters. The choice is God's. If you've ever studied Jacob, you might say, who in the world would choose this guy? Well, who in the world would choose you? I think that's part of the point of the text, the majesty of God, the grace of God, based upon his favor in his son, who wins it for us. It's the choice of God that matters, and our choice to come to Him are simply an outworking of His choice to bring us by His incredible power. It's important to realize, uh, all of us are theologians, that uh, uh, the word God is not just a title. 
the contents of that title are the supremacy of God. It's absolutely supreme over everything. And, uh, and therefore, you and I, as the sons of God, who has placed our faith in Jesus Christ, uh, belong to a program that is intractable, that cannot be derailed. And that God will vindicate us all. And we will be glorified. The timing of God. Again, I personally find in all these doctrines just the incredible comfort of what it is that our God is not just some empty title. He is God. He's not, he's not like the Queen of England, kind of a titular title goes to Queen Elizabeth. Our case, God is truly God. Uh, this is uh, confirmed in the fourth Old Testament citation from uh, Malachi chapter 1, uh, verses 2 and 3. Um, again, uh, Old Testament, Old Testament text to God's Old Testament people, if you will. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But I've hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation, pointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. God's love is particular. It's exactly what that text is saying. Uh, God's love is particular to his covenant people. And his covenant people were named in eternity past in the eternal covenant of redemption. It's not a universal love. I mean, I understand that God sends the rain and the sunshine uh, upon the lost and the saved. When it comes to redemption, God's love is particular. Again, another incredible illustration of the profound humility that Christians should have. For no other reason, the sovereign good pleasure, the will of God, he loved us in eternity past and then sets everything in motion to run it to ground. It's based entirely upon sovereign choice. We love based on what? Things. We love based on appearance. We love based upon what someone can do for me. God simply loves based on his choice. And then he wills it to be affected. And God's love is prior and absolutely determinative of divine favor. I mean, as you might expect, uh, this text is as every text is hotly debated, people, uh, people say, uh, well, uh, the concept of hatred here is uh, he, just, he just loved Esau less. Well, then what does it mean that uh, his inheritance was with the jackals 
in the wilderness. That's a pretty profound loving less. But I understand everyone's trying to struggle with this concept that God loves from eternity past. That he would love me and you is beyond human logic. But he did. So that we would praise him for giving us life from now to forever. But again, the context is God's sovereign choice. Therefore, the word speaks to the eternal rejection of Esau prior to his birth and prior to any actions on his part. It's all determined by God. Now again, it's worthwhile to issue a warning here. Sometimes people get very angry at that. Well, if that's the way God works. I want, I want nothing to do with him. Uh, just be very careful. You're dealing with God. You're not dealing with a president or a prime minister or some king somewhere. You're dealing with the Lord God of all the time and history and the universe. Uh, it's important to, to understand if you go and get angry with God, you'll be the loser, not God. Because his purposes are going to stand. Part of the point of the majesty of God is to work within us a sense of repentance in light of who he is. And to come to understand that in coming to faith in a personal and saving salvation in Jesus Christ, uh, we came to him because he brought us. And we came with nothing. We were bankrupt. Our pockets are inside out. Only thing we could cry is, God, save me. And God saves his own. The more important reality of this text is not just the rejection of Esau, but it's love for Jacob. Based solely and entirely on the good pleasure of the divine will and prior to the birth and accomplishments of Jacob. I mean, I've already told you what my will would have been. Esau was a man's man. Jacob kind of hung around his mother. Nothing with hanging around your mother, but I understand. But it's based on God's choice, God's will, God's power. And you and I are to submit to that and walk by faith and not by sight. And to esteem and to love and to confess God is the Lord of glory who works all things after the counsel of his will. And sometimes it does rain upon us. Sometimes it does hail upon us. Sometimes we are caught uh, figuratively and literally in tornadoes and our lives can be turned upside down. But the comfort in it all that we can have is that God's purposes will stand. He will gather all his sons and he will see them into everlasting glory. Men choose freely, but God's choice is causal and determinative. We come to faith, but we owe our faith to our election. We owe our faith to God who loved us first. And so, respecting a national salvation of Israel, God is vindicated. 
His word in the decree of election, the covenant of promise is affirmed in a remnant in contrast to the entire nation. And that remnant's going to be saved. It's a massive number, but it's going to be saved. But it's not a national salvation. And so, uh, the reading of this text is a description of the application of our own personal salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. Before we were even born, before we had done anything good or bad, and certainly uh, the doing in our lives uh, has a lot more bad than good, but God loved us, a love so powerful that it arrested us and brought us to the beautiful Redeemer, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you uh, don't know the Redeemer, uh, our Redeemer, Christ, took the eternal decree of election and purchased all that the Father gave him on the cross, satisfied wrath that we deserved, the penalty that we deserved and that we could not pay because we had nothing with which to pay. But out of eternal love, he set his affections upon us and brought us to this beautiful Redeemer of whom John says, of all that the Father has given me, I lose none. Now that's a Savior to flee to. That's a Savior to go to. And that's a Savior to love, as we should and must.